this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. My fellow reef therapist, Mark Vanderwall, how are you, buddy? Good. Hump day, Wednesday. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Next week I don't have to work, so looking forward to that. You're gonna be you're gonna be out here soon, right? Yeah, yeah. Flying out uh this weekend, um, and then flying out the next weekend. So flying home oh. the next weekend. All right. Well, we got a small window to get together. And, you know, it was really good to have you coming because for me, that was kind of like a benchmark of getting certain projects done. And one of them, I think I've mentioned already, was to uh, have one coral in the 400 gallon uh, hardline reef tank, which has been in there for like three weeks. <laughs> and the only thing that's holding me back from adding a few more is I'm just trying to knock back uh kind of a bacterial bloom it's it's not bad i just don't want rampant bacteria there when i'm cutting corals and adding kind of exposed tissue yeah and i'm 90 let's just call it 90 percent confident i could you know put some fresh cut corals in there without any issue and the coral that's in there i i took a picture like on day two and i compared it um it's been about three weeks i'm like all right it's growing it just doesn't have the awesomest color it's not bad it doesn't have the awesomest polyp extension again it's not bad but i know what it can do and i'm like once that coral's dialed in it's like all right like how much bandwidth do I have to process corals to put into it? But um, I feel like that uh, bacterial bloom could go away just any moment, any moment. I, I realized that one of the reasons I wasn't getting rid of it is I'm using this new uh, Ukrainian protein skimmer, the Alex Loga, with the open volute protein skimmer design. Yeah. That thing cranks. It just It's cool. You're going to really love it. It's got a nice volcano shape. Um, I accidentally left the drain open. Ooh. It has a valve, right? The, I mean, it's optional, but I left the valve open. And I kept looking at the skimmer cup like, man, it's skimming and it's skimming, but it's not filling up. What's happening? It took me a week because I was busy with other projects. Yeah. It took me like, a week to be like, oh, the valve is open. It's draining right back into the tank. So I feel like a, a few days of actual protein skimming and skimmate retention is going to do wonders for my bacterial bloom. I hate it too. When, I mean, when you were coming out to visit, my tank just decided to, you know, like, oh, let's have a little red turf algae show up in the the crushed coral bed. And I was like, where, where the hell did this come from? And then, uh, and then I became scared to clean it too much, you know, where you like maybe trigger I, something. I so then I was like, oh, but then after you left or like, you know, this past month, you know, the, 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 the coral crushed coral bed looks great again. And then I finally got off my butt and said, okay, I'm going to clean up all of the coralline algae on the back glass. And I was like, oh my God, that looks so much better. Why didn't I do that before he was here? Oh, well. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I get it. It's like, I had the same thing when Vincent came that one time to visit and I had a really bad outbreak at Ick. So all my fish were in, um, 
hospital tanks and it's like, oh, look at my fishless mm. reef tank, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. You know, when your fish have ick, even as an experienced reefer, if you're treating them or dealing with it somehow and you know that it's not a big deal, it's like seeing a bruise on your child. I don't have yeah. a child yet. But you're like, you're not cool until that bruise is gone. Like, you know, it's going to be fine. You know, the child's going to shake it off or the kid, you know, the fish is going to shake off the ick with proper treatment. But you just still feel bad every day that you can see, you know, even a few ick spores. Um, not cool. Not cool. But uh, yeah, actually, it's kind of like a big week for me because I finally, finally got the fat cube uh, flowing. You know, I saw the video. If you think of a, a, if you think of a reef aquarium system as like an organism, the moment that the return pump is turned on, I feel like that's when the heart is pumping. Yeah. Right. And holy cow! You know, I have a, I have a kind of a trough, right? Like a um, animal trough. You know, the common ones from Rubbermaid that people use 50, mm -hmm. 100, 200 gallons. And I have, I've had a whole reef system in there that I can't see unless I take a moment to stop and turn off the flow and look down through it. Dude, there's like a white yellow tang in there, a marine beta that eats flake food, a flame hawkfish, which I've never had, a handful of damselfish and, and clownfish that I, they've, they've been residents here at the studio for four months because I think I got this tank in February. I still don't know them. I don't know them, right? Normally, I, I pick up my fish, like my used fish, one at a time, but to have a whole trough full of like used real live rock and then leather corals, zoanthids, and gorgonians, plus all these fish, um, it's just kind of funny. It's kind of funny. But their new home, just to kind of for the folks who can't keep up with all the Reef Builders content on the website, on the podcast, on the videos, and in real life, um, I moved this 15-year-old acrylic tank in one day and I was planning to just do with that video. Right. And then the, the, then the stand broke and then I had to set up this emergency saltwater pond and I had to build a newsstand. And then I wanted to buff the acrylic cause it was like kind of my, uh, aquarist bucket list of something to, to learn how to do. And, uh, now that's all done and I got it all set up and it's flowing. And now I'm like, Oh sweet. I can take my time processing rocks, putting them in the tank. And God, I can't wait to see this white yellow tang because he's basically very pale bodied with very light yellow fins. And, uh, man, I think he's going to be a cool specimen. That's a, uh those Rubbermaid troughs are, are handy, man. Uh, I wish I still had mine. I, I had a shed in the backyard where I kept one. And whenever you need to do like a massive operation on your tank where you needed to empty a big tank, you could, I just would pull it out of the shed. You know, there were times where the house, we were doing something in the house, like putting hardwoods in and I had to move the tank out and you just put everything in the Rubbermaid trough, you know, <laughs> down in the basement. Um, I don't have it anymore because I don't have a shed anymore, but man, those things are, are handy. And, and they were, I mean, clearly you've had it basically be a pond for these organisms for quite a while. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. um, but yeah, that's a, that's a cool pickup. I mean, like the tank itself too, you don't really see one as many acrylic tanks, but that's a cool shape too. the dimensions of it. Um, you know, the only reason I said yes 
the, the only reason I went to go see the tank is because I knew it had a wild yellow tang. And I I feel like those are, are going to be one of the rarest fish in the hobby. And I know it sounds stupid, like saying it is what it is. But if you know, you know, right? You, just wild yellow tangs are just flawless in a way that has, you know, captive breeding is is getting closer to replicating but it's just it's just not there yet and then the second reason i decided to grab this tank was because i thought it'd be cool and informational to do this video on how to move a reef tank oh my goodness i if i knew how much work was going to go into it yeah um i i would I'd have, i would have said no if i knew i had to build a stand buff the tank set up a temporary holding i definitely if i had that crystal ball I definitely wouldn't have done it, but I've never had a marine beta. This thing eats flake, man. I swear this thing's got his weird yellow streak kind of in the um, posterior edge of the dorsal fin. And it just looks so freaking cool and he eats flake food. And he's just like, you know, he'll hang out close to the surface, kind of looking up like, hey, you're going to feed me. And um, that's all we feed of that tank. So obviously he's eating it and I've seen him eat it. And it's just, it's like one of those classic iconic reef fish. Right yeah. when you first get into the reef aquarium hobby, you learn about blue tangs, yellow tangs, clownfish, marine betas, firefish, a few damselfish, and I've just never had one. And now I have one. I've had it for f like four months, and I haven't really, really, really seen it. And I'm, I'm excited. Um, I'm excited to have that tank done because I will still build some smaller systems. But as far as like medium to large tanks, I'm done, man. I'm sitting on ten sumps. 30 different glass boxes and i'm like this is enough <laughs> this is a, this is pretty much enough the only thing i would do is like if we ever move the studio i wouldn't mind making some of the peninsula tanks just larger right a lot of the corals are already reaching those proportions where i'm looking at that dotted line along the branches of like how can i cut this down or how am i going to cut this down in the future and uh but yeah i don't want more tanks but i wouldn't mind just bigger tanks I mean, your position, having a large variety of systems running, obviously gives you um, a lot more interesting things to talk about, both, you know, for reef builders um, in blog and also in video format, right? Like, okay, this tank, we're doing this with that tank. But when I look at it from, let's say, my perspective, where I, I'm not really looking to produce content, um, the, the amount of water volume, the amount of evaporation, the amount of electrical consumption, like you're in the territory where you could you could have the same uh, of all those metrics, but have a massive tank, right? I mean, um, and which is something that doesn't, I'm, I just, I don't have a position in life to do that because one, I live in a very humid environment. Uh, I don't want to have to make massive changes to my house or to my basement to accommodate, you know, uh, a 2,000-gallon tank or something. But it's always like, you know, the, the kid in me, that's always the dream, right, is to have like a massive system. Um, but also I recognize Four. that some of the joy is lost in those big systems, right, because you put a frag in it and it essentially just disappears, <laughs> you know. Um, whereas, Even if it grows out to a three-foot colony – but it's yeah. four feet away from you in the glass. Right. It's not a pet. It's not some a coral that you really, really know. So I, I, I don't think it's I'll a ever background want a coral at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I'll ever want anything bigger than like five hundred gallons. 
six, seven hundred pounds. You know, unless it's peninsula, agree you can with see that. it from both sides. But beyond two feet, that coral's far, man. That coral's over there. <laughs> that coral is over there, and it's not something you can like observe and inspect. And you know, one thing I will say is that Colorado is uniquely suited for what I'm trying to do here. Oh right? yeah, it gets. It, you know, summertime gets hot, but not thing like, you know, the heat waves that the world is experiencing. Our electricity is probably mid-range, but it's super reliable. But um, anytime the humidity gets a little high up in here, I mean, I could open up the windows and doors for 10 minutes. Poof, it's gone. Just yeah. absolutely gone. You and can literally just run a fan and pump in external air and you could even you know if you want to get super fancy if you're living in a house out there you could get like an energy recovery ventilator that adjusts the temperature mm -hmm. of the incoming air to your house temperature and you could fix a humidity issue instantly i can't right i gotta can like it's humid as hell right now outside where i live so yeah I remember, man, I used to live in the South too. Yeah, this was not, this would be a very different uh, scenario if I was trying to do this outside of Colorado. Other places would get too hot. Others would get too cold. Um, you know, Southeast would just be way too humid plus hot. And so with all the LEDs I'm running, you know, I don't have to heat it up as much in the summertime. But I'll tell you what, man, most of the heat in the studio comes from inside the studio. Really? Because, I mean, I really should do like an accounting of how many LEDs are running because all energy um, degenerates to heat, right? So it doesn't matter what you're doing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. know. It's got to be several, I don't know, four, three, four thousand watts of LED lighting. Right. And it's all just blowing off heat all the time. But, um, yeah, we got some, uh, some Q and A to, to get to. But before we jump into that, I want to thank everybody for submitting some questions in the comments that we, uh, primed you guys for in our previous video. We don't say this often. It's not our priority, but to make sure to like, or sorry, um, yes, like and subscribe on YouTube and rate us in your favorite podcatcher. Um, but before we jump into those questions, which Mark and I have not even looked at, right? We saved it for this moment. Um, I mean, I just want to say like, I've built three systems this year, this year, right? Each one of them uses a breeder tank as a sump. Uh, two of them use an automatic filter roll, and almost all of them are running kind of like a low water level situation. And um, I swear, man, I think you and I are both desperate for content, and I will browse videos by other producers, and I swear I'm getting dumber by the minute. <laughs> I, I, it's just, I hear like, like how is someone still connecting an, a, a reverse osmosis unit directly to the float valve on their tank? How do you not know that that is the biggest liability for killing your reef tank? I don't understand why that's optional. Why a service company, a professional, professional installer will install an RO unit directly to the sump of your tank. If you don't know, say there's a leak and or a fault with the float valve, you're just pumping straight fresh water to your tank with no limits until someone catches it. And you're probably not going to catch it until you find a flood. 
And if you already have like, you know, a safety drain on your sump, you might not catch it until your corals are straight up dying and your fish aren't looking right. I don't, I don't understand. Like you and I knew or we learned collectively as a community 15, 20 years ago, you do not connect an RO unit directly to your, uh, you know, ATO valve. No. Yeah. I mean, am I, am I, am I crazy here? Back me up. I, it depends on how you do it because I essentially am, you know, once removed from that by having my auto top off be directly connected to my RODI. But I have redundancies out at the wazoo and I still lose sleep over it, right? I have two solenoids. I saw your setup, dude. It was yeah. crazy. Obsessive, right? It was um, crazy and like, no, it wasn't obsessive. It was thorough. Well, it was really thorough because you've thought it out and you know the risks, and you're like, ooh, you know, you had that flood associated with some plumbing in your house, and you're like, yeah. I'm glad this wasn't my reef tank. Let me go ahead and make sure this is never my reef tank. Yeah, it gave you, it's like having a real visualization of this is what would happen, you know, if something went wrong with that RODI setup. It just happened to not be my RODI that did it. Um, and, and yeah, I, I lost a lot, but I have anxiety about my fridge, you know, the ice makers hooked up to my water line. Um, and there's probably some cheap little solenoid in there that turns it on and off when my kids walk up and fill up a cup. Right. So, yeah, I mean, so I think you could do it. I just don't see the value in doing that because you're still going to need fresh water for, mixing or uh, mixing concentrates of uh, two-part additives or you're going to make salt water to make a water change. And and so my argument is like hook your RODI up to a container where you have that water as a resource, not just for your top off, but for doing everything else, you know? Um, so, yeah, I don't quite understand the logic of doing it, I guess, more so than the risk. The risk, I agree, because it's one thing to flood your house. It's another thing to also kill your fish tank, right, at the same time. So now you're dealing with a rotting death smell while you're also dealing with mold and behind your drywall. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, I was uh, The reason I'm – Go ahead. Sorry. The reason I mentioned having set up three systems is like this is what we do at Reef Builders. We, we build reef tanks. We're not just – coasting on a couple three systems you know and i god i just i don't know that there's anything better than a breeder tank or something comparable to use as a sump this is what i something i wrote up today i'm like i love fancy sumps i love the bells and whistles i love looking at them i don't like using them right because when you go to use them almost always the probe holders aren't where you want them. The the dosing line holders aren't where you want them. There's this <laughs> yeah. excess of baffles. Like you you add baffles like somehow that makes the sump better. And I think you and I both like removed uh, partitions from our water boxes or Red Seas. And um, my mode uh, system, you know, we, we removed all the baffles except for one for structural integrity, not for any kind of baffling use. And I feel like there's so much holdover from early days of reef keeping where we're trying to process water through this thing and then that thing and mechanical media and biological media and chemical media and micro bubbles 
right? But like we don't have micro bubbles anymore. So I've been running a 60 breeder sump on the 400. I got a 40 breeder sump on my 200 gallon fish tank. I got a 40 breeder sump on the new fat cube. That's also 200 gallons. And I keep, I keep looking at it. I'm like, would I want to baffle anywhere? And I just keep coming back to no. I mean, I no, just give me the yeah. big wide open space. And, and one baffle is cool. If you have like a refugium or true algae scrubber beforehand, and somehow you're worried about, you know, um, those bits getting back into your tank, or if you want to take advantage of that flowing water to um, incorporate a chemical or mechanical media re- uh, filtration chamber, but then everybody who gets a super fancy sump, they're going to add a separate media reactors anyway, right? Yeah. And the other thing Am is- I crazy? Uh, Am I taking crazy pills over here? No, I mean- I. It used to be you also wanted your skimmer in a constant volume of water, but auto top-off units are That's so what? precise that, it, you know, your auto top-off unit will take care of that, right? Like your skimmer will be in fairly level water with only minute differences. Um, I don't like My that they make the return pump so small, right? So it's like any little minute change I make, the water level in the return pump drops, uh, I removed a bunch of catamorpha today. You know, I'm prepping my tanks for the vacation. So I'm doing some needed maintenance. And it's just funny, like, to remove Cato and then, like, okay, my auto top-off kicks off because that was a displace- a removal of uh, displaced volume, right? But, man, my auto top-off ran for quite a freaking while. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Did the water level drop so much in that little compartment, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. If I could design sumps, not that I want to do that for a living, there's so many things I would do differently if I were to build with Priest all the compartments. Yeah. I want to know what you would do with with the sump. I wouldn't put filter socks in. I, but that's a personal preference, I guess. I just I think that's such a waste of space. Um, if you want mechanical filtration, I really do love these new filter rollers. Maybe make your sump friendly for that. Um, and yeah, I mean, maybe have a compartment that you can use for either a skimmer or a refugium. But yeah, I'm I'm with you, man. I I I feel I'm I'm not a hundred percent happy with my sump right now. So I may put a sixty breeder in there one day, just like you, and just have because that my one eighty uh, that I, pictures were shared on the uh, reef bum. All it had was a forty breeder sump with no uh, baffles whatsoever. Yeah. And my refugium was a bucket, a bucket with a light that I drill some holes in. And um, I'm not, I'm not saying that everybody needs to go like medieval on their sumps, but maybe just reevaluate what's most important in the sump because I almost feel like this whole conversation is about sumps. Supposed to get to some Q and A, but we'll get there. We'll get there. But yeah, just you know, I've set up three tanks this year, and there's. They're not like small systems. They're, you know, kind of involved and they're all breeder tanks. And it's not because I couldn't call up a company and ask for a sump or buy one or get one made. It's because, okay, I do want something a little bit larger, a little bit showier for the 400 gallon, but the 60 breeder is a great way to start, right? It's four by 18 mm-hmm. and it gives me a starting point. Right. But then on every tank, yeah, I was just like, on, on the other two tanks, I'm like, oh, 40 breeder, boom, there you go, $40, you know, $1 gallon Petco sale. I got one used for my friend for free, you know, drill a hole in the back and, and off to the races. I'm like, 
there's all this room left over after the automatic filter roll, after the protein skimmer, after the return pump is in there. I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to store some rock in here as I'm processing it to go into the main tank. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I like refugiums quite a bit, so I use those quite a bit. Um, refugiums or algae scrubbers? I mean, I call them refugiums, but yeah, macroalgae scrubbers, right? I like growing some Kato and some Calerpa, but uh, um, I actually like some of these new Triton-style sumps where they used to be the refugium compartment was an afterthought and the skimmer compartment was gigantic. And I would always... I would rather run a smaller skimmer and a larger refugium. Um, so I really liked the popularity of some of these Triton sums that suddenly had massive areas for you to grow macroalgae and you could still put a decent sized skimmer in there. And DC powered skimmers are so efficient now. You know, you don't really need a mega skimmer anymore. Um, don't need a jumbotron. Yeah. So that is my preference and that is the sump I ended up with. It's just, Small critique, you know, was that the return pump compartment, I would have given up a couple of inches of that refugium to have a larger return pump compartment. And then, of course, you brought up where the dosing lines are. If you're going to give me this really cool option to have dosing lines, like don't put it right by my return pump. You know where the dosing lines should go? Yeah. Your overflow box. Yeah. They should go all the way up to your tank in the overflow box so they have time to be thoroughly mixed and not run into any critical equipment and hit your automatic filter roll before it hits your protein skimmer. That is, that is the ideal place, which I will almost never do. Right. But Evan, Evan does have a, his, um, uh, calcium reactor line go to his overflow box so it can get diluted. It goes down to automatic filter roll, then it hits a skimmer. So it's like even more diluted, but there's, yeah, you can't really win, but that's the ideal place to put it because anywhere else you're going to have some degree of precipitation. But, um, I, I want to rail on refugiums just a little bit. Oh man. Here Let's we go. put time on the clock. <laughs> Two minutes. <laughs> The only right. reason you, anyone needs a refugium is because they're using sand. And or they have too many fish that they feed too much. Because I'm over here with like 30 aquariums. Okay, five or six of them are fresh. And I have to dose phosphate and nitrate to every tank to keep it from botting and out. None of the tanks have sand except for the 10-gallon nano. But it does bottom out on nutrients. And I love the idea of the refugium. I love the romance of it. I actually, besides the nutrient export, I think the most critical aspect of algae scrubbers is phytoremediation, pulling out heavy metals and things that you don't even need to worry about. And I think that's one of the reasons that Triton recommends the sump, the, the algae scrubber that everyone is now calling a refugium. I'm never going to let it go. I, I won't let it go. <laughs> and... Or, or boosting your pH if you run reverse daylight photosynthesis, which no one does anymore. Everybody runs full time. But I had the most beautiful, like spinning barrel of live ketomorpha. And then when everything started getting you know, clicking, then the ketomorpha started going downhill because there was no nutrients. And I'm like, I'm here to grow corals, not algae. And I have seen just about as, as many reef tanks as anyone in the world. In currently, currently, I hope some future bloggers will just take that and run. 
I have never seen a reef tank whose success was um, penchant on the presence or absence of refugium or algae scrubber. And rant. <laughs> Out of my system. All righty. I think uh, I think I covered all my my therapeutic points for this week. How about you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm in a I'm in a good state of mind. Um, I think the only other thing I would add is you know my basement tanks. Yeah, the corals are happy. The aesthetics are not. You know, so I've been trying to figure that out. Uh, I want you to to uh, unpack that. What does that mean for the listeners who don't understand what you're saying? Uh, little patches of cyano, uh, little patch of that green slime algae cyano, which, uh, I've not run into before. I just recently did a five gallon water change and siphoned as much out as I could, but it's still there. Um, I know my point is that the, the corals look great, you know, great polyp extension. It's an LPS tank. All the, all the, uh, corals are. Is that the most important lump? Yeah, of course. Uh, of course. Yeah, if I of if, course if I start to see deterioration corals, then I know I'm not creating a good environment. Aesthetically speaking, it ain't gonna you know win over any fans on Instagram right now. Um, so I'm kind of like, okay, what's going on with this tank, and what are we doing with this tank? And then of course you know you, then you start to not drive as much joy out of it because it's not as attractive. Um, I I because it's a it so you just went on a refugium ramp, you know, and I think I've said this before. For some reason, when I add a refugium uh, with my habits, the tank just dials in much quicker, and uh, so I I can't explain it. Uh, I just noticed that for me, I like having a fuge with algae, and sometimes the algae doesn't grow a lot. Uh, right now, for some reason, my big tank. Uh, last month I removed, and this is wet weight, but I removed 3.4 pounds of Kato wet, <laughs> like a trash bag. And then... Do you think it's a good idea to pull that much at once? No, because I did notice a, a shift in the tank for a while. It's It seems that my tank is the happiest when the Kato has grown into a rectangular box like it's it's like i can literally pull it out of the fuge and it retains the shape of the sump compartment <laughs> um but uh today i removed 2.9 pounds wet so and i'm not dosing any trace elements so i'm kind of like what's going on like why am i so successful because usually i don't grow this much kato um anyway that's another discussion but this tank down here you know is me trying something new and different like hey let's get up with the times do a filter roller do a skimmer keep it simple i do have a substrate in there but it's an lps tank right so i i want a substrate um for some of these free living corals but yeah it's just it's not dialed in there's something weird with it and i so i actually am trying i put some uh bacteria some microbacter on a dosing pump and i'm dosing like a tiny amount and which microbacter microbacter 7 clean 7 xlm uh microbacter 7 it's just what i had uh, laying around but my brain tells me that if you have cyano you actually have a when i've experimented with uh, carbon dosing 
bio pellets, you know, which is all bacterial dosing. You're not dosing the bacteria, but you're dosing a carbon source. I would always end up in cyanoville, right? Because I, you know, you want, like we talked about redfield ratio last time, but I do feel like you you bottom out your nitrates, but there's still a little bit of phosphates laying around, and then this nitrogen fixing bacteria is like, hey, now I get to win the competition, right? I have a competitive advantage. So every part of my brain says it's a bad idea to dose bacteria to this tank that has a cyano issue. But I mean, what the hell, right? So, um, cause there is plenty of food, right? There is. And what's interesting to me is, uh, uh, you know, somebody would probably advocate dosing nitrates, but, um, I don't know. I, I tried that for a little bit and I didn't see much of improvement. So now I'm just kind of seeing if one bacteria can eventually, you know, in a dosed state sort of outcompete a bad bacteria, right? Like, like taking probiotics basically. Uh, but we'll see. It's just an experiment. I'll probably kill all my corals and regret it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. Yeah. But- your tech is doomed. You don't know what you're doing. You should just quit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to cool. do other than let it ride out, right? And let it just go away on its own, so. Yeah, I think when you're here, we can have a conversation about one of the tanks that has posed some challenges for me. But um, are you ready to field some questions from the comments? Sure. That we primed sure. everybody for? Um, all right, so we take these and just you know, newest order. And Dan Weil says, I think a good topic would be temperature or the pros and cons of keeping reef tanks at higher and lower temperatures. Um, this is so critical. I think temperature is more important than salinity for the immediate survival of the fish and corals in a reef tank. Cause if it's freezing, they're dead. If it's boiling, they're dead, right? If the temperature is a little bit, if the salinity is a little bit high or a little bit low, they're going to last a while. Right. So, man, temp- temperature is the speed at which everything operates, the chemistry and the biology, which is basically the whole reef tank. And we should be talking about it a lot more. What do you think, Mark? Yeah. So, uh, and this is funny for this to be the first question after I just talked about this tank in the basement, but um, I have some opinions on just my own perceived experiences with temperature. Common wisdom dictates that a, a lower temperature means that the body of water can hold more oxygen, right? So that's better for the fish. It slows metabolism down, which is good. Um, obviously, we all get to read articles about bleaching events related to temperature. Um, so it's obviously a stressor for corals if it's too high. Um but when I beat dinos by raising the temperature in my tank back to metal halide day temperatures, right, 81, uh, I got rid of my particular strain of dinos, but I got rid of cyano too. Um, this tank in the basement, I brought back down to 78, and I have cyano issues. Um, so another thing I could try is raise the temperature back up to 81 and see if that pisses off the cyano. So I think it's I, important to point out just real quick yeah. that if you're running your reef tank at like 78, 79, 80 degrees uh, 20 to 15 years ago, that was considered low. Yes. 
a lot of people ran their tanks at 83, 84, 85, basically discus temperatures minus the salt. Carry on. No, yeah. So I, uh, obviously for me, it was a stumbled into situation when I was trying to combat dinos that, you know, just, you know, looked at me smugly as my UV sterilizer did, you know, jack alt for it. Um so I, I have this weird belief system now that uh, hotter temp or 80, 81 is, uh, well, actually 81, 82 is actually a better uh, experience for me, reef keeping. The only reason I brought this one down to 78 is I have some Wilsonies in there and, uh, you know, a little bit concerned about running those at a higher temperature. So I thought I'd bring it down a bit and acclimate them as best as I could without going all the way down to like 74 or something. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting how that is another sort of amnesia moment in a hobby where I think hobbyists today would look at you like you're crazy if you ran a tank at 82 degrees, right? And 78 is sort of the common right. wisdom. Yeah. 78 is, is upper end for me at the studio. Like there's virtually no need for me to run a heater. Um, I do have heaters on some of the tanks. I took it off the fish tank. I unplugged it on the two peninsula tanks because they're contained enough. I know how to keep the temperature up by closing the doors. Yeah. Right. So right now, all of my stands are open just to buy me that extra two degrees of headroom. It's a difference between running 79 to 81. Not a big deal, but at a higher temperature, the corals grow faster. And we're talking about stony corals, right? Mm -hmm. If you study a little marine science or oceanography, you know that at 4,000 meters, which is about, I'm going to say, just about three miles, give or take, um, there is no calcium carbonate below that point because it's so cold and the pressure dissolves all the calcium carbonate. And so if you go in the other range, um, uh, calcium carbonate that all our stony corals are made from uh, precipitates at high temperatures, which is why you have lime buildup around your pumps. This is why we talked about cleaning your heaters to keep them from developing a shell that's going to make them even hotter. Um, I'm not saying the temperature you run at is going to affect your heater, but just use that analogy or that illustration of higher temperature means more precipitation of your corals, right? So if you're really aiming to grow, let's say shallow water, stony corals, not talking about deep water, naked styles, you know, cause they do occur deep enough to be below the thermocline and be a good five degrees cooler. But if you're trying to grow, you know, high energy stags, millies, tenuous, uh, millipora, um, those guys, every time I've been diving in shallow water, man, they are straight 80 plus. 80, 85 is not even, it's not even that hot. The bleaching happens closer to like 86, 88, 90 plus for sustained periods of time combined with um, high pressure events, which stifles wind, which removes kind of that surface agitation. So if I had to pick like a ideal temperature for acropores in shallow water, Right, some of the fanciest uh, stags and and cornbos acros that we grow, I, I'd peg it around eighty three to eighty five. Oh wow! Now, you don't necessarily want to run your reef tank that fast because you're just going to be your corals will grow so 
fast. Ideally, you're just going to have to dose so much more. And there's something to be said for getting your corals to where you want them and then kind of just pulling back on all the inputs, right? And so, but yeah, if you have a tank full of acanthophilias, cinerinas, leptoceras, some of those, you know, truly deeper water corals, you probably want to aim closer to 75, right? So my Cade Aquarium that has bubble corals, cinerinas, scolemias, micromusas, that one runs closer to 72 in the winter really? and 75 in the summer. Yeah, that is that, that one is, is engineered for to be cooler. It, it really is. Um, so, yeah, t- like you said, temperature is super important for, like, the microbiology. But anytime I think of temperature, boom, my, cl- my, my brain clicks to uh, precipitation and dissolution of calcium, right? So, if you have, like, say, for example, an inefficient pump on your calcium reactor, like back in the day, a little giant pump on your calcium reactor that's heating up the calcium reactor that's literally going to decrease the dissolution rate of the calcium carbonate aragonite crystals of whatever you put in there, right? So you want a cool calcium reactor and you want a warmer reef tank for fastest stony coral growth. Interesting. Yeah. You didn't I think mean, I was going to go there, did you? No, that was good info though. Cause I, like I said, I was running this tank at 80, this LPS tank at 82 had no cyano issues, no dino issues. And then, you know, I got these Wilsonis in and I thought, okay, I should probably bring it down a bit. Now I'm battling with cyano and I'm, trying more other methods you know to try to solve it but um you sort of sold me on not going back up you know like maybe going down lower again uh, for the health of those corals um Mm. but i think we both together we elucidated both extremes Right, some lower temperatures are going to be better for LPS corals, but also those higher temperatures might be better for the microbiology of the reef tank. So, um, Dan Wiles, that was a really great question, and you could you could dive deep into the temperature aspect of reef tanks. But um, uh, I just want to mention one comment. We have GRP Aquatics says. I just want to say I still love I'm still loving reef therapy. I really should pre I really appreciate Mark's perspective. So JRP Aquatics, thanks for being a fan of Mark. Thank you. Another co host But you know, we'll just uh we'll find a, a another question here. Um <laughs> goodness gracious, where's the question? I see a lot of comments. Well, comments are right, here we go. too. Yeah. Clay Sperlin says, if y'all could only keep one species of coral and one species of fish, what would you keep? Oh, boy. That's a really good question. That's a really good question. Oh, God. One species of coral. Oh, that's a tough one. Where are you, where, where's your mind at, Mark? I think I would surprise people uh, on the coral one. Um, if If truly, you know the universe had the powers to limit my ability to one species, I would probably go back to Acropora just because of the sheer. That's a genus. That's a genus. Oh, species. Take it down one more Sorry, notch. Sorry, you said species. Yeah, I wasn't paying attention. Um, shoot. Dang. Okay, never mind. Now it's become a lot more complicated. Uh, All right. While you, while you think about it, I have a good answer on the coral. Okay. And I'm going to split it up into two. 
if there was one species of coral I could keep, it would either be SPS, would be some kind of Acapora tortuosa. I don't care if it's a mortal tort, organ tort, Cali tort, Miyagi tort. Acapora tortuosa just doesn't get FF. It's just, it will just grow and it will satisfy and it will just be happy. And it's intermediate as far as like being a staghorn shape. It's got blue and purple colors. Uh, for me, that's an easy choice. I mean, I love so many Acapora species, right? But Tortuosa is so freaking rewarding, right? That's why we have so many strains and they're super common. Now, if it was an LPS coral, once again, for me, the choice is easy. Branching hammer coral branching hammer just all day every day because it you know you have a colony you have an lps you got some swaying polyps and you can share with your friends and of course it's not celebrated these days and most people would pick a torch probably but torch is much more likely to melt on you than than a parancora you feel you you know so for me the coral choice is easy they're actually they're actually not my favorites but if i had to limit it to a single one those would be easy choices. Did you come up with one? Yeah. I, so one, I would agree with you on the branching hammer coral. And I think back to um, that fish store in Colorado that just had one giant wall hammer in the tank. So so the way I've, I phrased the question in my brain is at that point, it's really just what coral do you want to fill your entire tank with as a backdrop, Right. Um, the other one would just be, and I don't know the exact species name, but like a nice green cinellaria, you know, cause I've seen tanks that are just, uh, monospecific before and just, a, a, just a crap ton of green cinellaria just flowing, you know, and it makes for a, a fantastic, uh, monospecific display. Um, so yeah, between that or the hammer, the branching, I like your branching hammer one too. Um, if it was SBS. Ooh, uh, I would probably go with Ma, uh, Monopora digitata, you know, because you can get that in a variety of colors. Uh, it's in crusts and branches, so I think you could get some some cool, fun, you know, display out of that. You get some orange digi, you could have some purple, green I digi. Very much approve. Yeah, that's a that's a fun. Very quote. much approve if I had a tank full of just peach or purple or forest fire digitata. I'd be having a good time. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to be blowing people's minds with it. But man, it's been a long time since I've been a good, I've seen a really good patch of purple digitata. I have a lot of digitata strains, and purple is one. For some reason, that one just keeps self fragging and breaking off itself. Um, But uh, yeah. What about fish? What would be if you had to keep one fish? I think that's harder. I feel like it's super personal and it doesn't really, it's probably just going to harken back to our history and less to like anything practical. I mean, my all time favorite. Man, that's tough. Um, Royal grandma, Royal grandma, because you can keep one, you can keep multiples and it's just bright purple, bright yellow, cool fins. You know, 10 to 15 bucks on, depending where you live in the United States. And for me, that's been an easy choice. Although I'd be, I'd be probably just as happy with the yellow tang. Yeah, I was going zebra soma, yellow tang for in my brain there. Um, if I could only keep one surgeon fish, probably pur- a purple tang, just because I you know, like those a little bit more. But zebra somas, absolutely. Yeah, and you can keep like six of them, right? Um, 
the the tang police might not be happy with you but you know they they you can keep multiple in a tank because i'd say my all-time favorite fish is an emperor angel but i wouldn't want to keep one of those in an aquarium unless i had a really big aquarium and then i love regal angels i always will um but again you could pair one up but uh, you're not keeping like 10 of them in a tank i mean i guess you could maybe the aggression would be dissipated but um yeah i like the yellow tang I'll, I'll go with that as my answer. All righty. Here's a, here's a layup question from Raymond. Um, Jake, do you know if Ecotech is doing a filter role integrated into Mobius or Aquarium Controller? That question's for me. There's another one for you. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm confident they're not <laughs> because um, there's so many things that, that Ecotech could do and I know they're like, they're entertaining doing an anniversary edition of their calc reactor. Because oh, the for OG, those who yeah. know, that's actually how Ecotech Marine started making a magnetically stirred kind of like smart calcwasser reactor. Um, I've seen one or two of those out in the wild ever. I don't even know if they've made more than a couple dozen. I doubt it. And for, as far as the aquarium controller, what do you mean by aquarium controller, right? They have dosing pumps, they have return pumps, they have flow pumps, they have lights, and they all connect to each other. You don't need a central brain to have a controller. Yeah, right. So rewind the clock a dozen years, and you needed a controller to control your dosing, your return pump, your flow pump, and your light, although we just got by with having none of those things controlled. So I don't think... Ecotech Marine will develop a standalone controller because it doesn't make sense. But one thing that would slot in very well to the ecosystem, because their app, man, they are throwing more resources to that thing than most companies do at their entire product catalog. Um, one thing that would slot in very well would be a controllable power strip to control kind of just accessory devices with a water level sensor for auto top off and maybe like a pH or temperature, you know, integration. Um, so I don't think they'll ever do a actual bona fide controller in the classical sense. It'll be a decentralized controller, which we're kind of already enjoying with Mobius. And then the question for Mark, do you have Dutch blood? Your last name sounds Dutch. Go ahead. Yep. Uh, I was born in, well, just outside of Utrecht in the Netherlands, um, if you're familiar with the Netherlands. Okay, yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm originally Dutch. Uh, I moved as a kid to the United States with my parents. Uh, we moved around a lot before the United States and also a little bit after the United States. So, uh, I've lived in the Middle East. I've lived in Indonesia. I mean, all when I was a little kid. So it's not, you know, like I was donning a scuba tank and having a good time in Indonesia. But um lived in Canada. Uh, yeah. So, yes, I became an American citizen in, I want to say 2002, maybe two, no, 2001, I think. So I am a naturalized right when, citizen. Right when you got to Central Tank of the Month. Yeah, around that time. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds kind of crazy. I, I was so I had a green card and I was you know fine working, went to college and all of that here. And I I moved here in the eighties, right? So uh, I'd been 
pretty much Amer- an Americanized kid. Um, spent my summers back in Europe quite a bit. Uh, so once I got out of school, we'd go visit all the relatives and hang out there, you know. But um, it sounds crazy now, but I, I, I got nervous after 9-11 because, you know, if you paid attention to the media, they were talking about closing the borders and, you know, uh, being more careful about uh, people coming into the country. And I was like, you know... I like it here. I'm dating this girl that I want to marry. She's American. I was like, ah, she probably, you know, I was eligible for citizenship. So I was like, ah, I'll go ahead and get it done. So in hindsight, I, you know, obviously that was just the media scaremongering and uh, I could have probably lived on my green card a little bit longer. Um, sadly, I lost my dual. I, 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 Holland now and back then did not honor dual citizenship. Uh, so I lost my Dutch citizenship. Not that I ever want to move back there, but it would just be cool for my kids to have that opportunity if they ever wanted to work abroad in the EU as a life experience. That would be kind of cool. But I'm uh, pretty sure with just Vanderwall on the <laughs> application form, that will get them some distance. Yeah, I always wonder if I just cool. applied for a passport, if they just you know, how, how good are their systems? Would they just be like, oh yeah, here's your Dutch passport. <laughs> so I'm not going to try it, but anyway. All right. We have a, a really cool question from Recife Conde. Um, it says, what are your thoughts on using live rock in 2022 from the oceans? It definitely was a great solution in the past, but should we still be using it now that alternate solutions exist and works very well? Do you want to take it or do you want to stew on it? Because I got to answer right now. I think I'll let you go for it first because I have mixed emotions about it. I feel like the entire reef aquarium hobby takes the approach of throwing the entire kitchen sink at the wall and seeing what sticks. I feel like we inherited some place to start with freshwater aquarium keeping, right? And so that's why we call them reef tanks right? Not saltwater fish tanks with corals. We call them reef tanks because our first approach at recreating the environment was recreating the environment. Yeah. I stand like, I, I love all the reef life. I went to school for this stuff, but over a long period of time, I mean, it didn't take me long to realize that everything becomes a pest, even corals, right? So on a long enough timeline, we won't be keeping reef tanks anymore. We're going to be keeping coral tanks with a very fine-tuned selection of bacteria to help us do that job. You know, even coralline algae is a liability. It competes with the corals for minerals and trace elements. It blocks up your equipment, and it creates sand that also blocks up your equipment. And I love coralline. I love sponges. I love... Uh, foraminifera. I love bryozoans. I love freaking every part of the ocean. I don't necessarily need every piece of that in my saltwater aquarium that is dominated by corals, right? When you, when Mark and I and other reefers get together, we don't spend a lot of time talking about the desmophilium growing on the back wall, right? You don't even know the genus name of coralline algae because we don't talk about it. You don't even know the genus name of copepods or amphipods because we don't spend that much time talking about it, right? We all know ketomorpha because it's distinct. And so 
you know, on a long enough timeline, I, I, I foresee the hobby becoming, you know, we say fish only with live rock. I think we're going to talk about saltwater tanks with mostly corals, right? A new acronym will be created for that. It's it, if you've never kept a saltwater aquarium, getting fresh live rock, like truly real, real live rock, which I don't even know where you can get it. I know Unique Corals has been getting some Australian rock as a salmon rock. I wouldn't mind setting up a saltwater tank just for like a live rock tank and just letting whatever grows grows. But when it comes to focusing on the corals and the overall balance and mix of our reef aquariums, um, no, thank you. No, thank you. I don't want you to introduce any algae. Every time I move rocks from one tank to another, I'm trying to remove Valonia, remove Amtasia, remove sponges. And um, yeah, I think uh, I think my point is clear. What do you think? So for me, it's always an internal battle because uh, you, you mentioned uh, the romantic idea of refugium. I I am still very romanticized by the ecosystem in a box idea, but deep down to my core, I agree with what you're saying. Right? I don't think it's a possible. I uh, to to build you know the Walter eighty dynamic aquaria ecosystem in a box right i i don't think that's real anymore although the kid in me wants to continue to believe that you know we're going to build a biosphere one day and blah 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 um that should be a different hobby or a branch off the hobby. yes and that's that's where i was sort of going in a way is um What's what do you want your journey to be, right? I think if you're getting into it and you just love the discovery of life occurring in your aquarium, setting up a tank with some live rock and corals and just appreciating that journey, even with its ups and downs, is like one of the best parts of the hobby that I miss, right? The old school, just random critters crawling around that uh, we had back when live rock was readily available. I miss that uh, to my core. But I also understand that if once you get to a point where it's really all about the corals, and for me it isn't, um, but for a lot of people it is, then you start to, having lived through pests, you start to look at things differently, right? And then I think a more sterile tank is more appealing because you're tired of the headaches, right? You're tired of dealing with bubble algae. You're tired of dealing with aptasia. You don't want to have to go through that again. So it, it all depends on, I think, where you are with your journey. Um, I, you could give a beginner advice to start with dry rock and, you know, seed it with bacteria, maybe grab a couple of like uh, chunks of gravel or whatever from somebody's tank to really seed the bacteria and the diversity. And you could, you're well on your way and you may not have as many issues with pests, but I feel like you missed part of the journey if you do that. So uh, to me, I've done, and in 2018, I set up a tank with, um, Florida live rock. And I went through that roller coaster all over again. And I had to deal with predatory whelks. I mean, I, I was still picking them out like two years later, like, oh, here's another one. Um, I had a mantis shrimp, you know, I had some headaches, but no regrets, man. It was a fun little journey to go back and like throw a tank together with some Florida live rock and, and throw some softies in it. So uh, I had pistol shrimp. I had, yeah, I mean, I had a ton of different sponges, but the other thing is after about five years, all the cool creepy crawlies sort of die out anyway, right? And you're sort of like in the same place as the guy next to you that started with dry rock. So um, 
I, long-winded answer, but my point is it's not necessary. We don't need live rock anymore, right? I, I think uh, dry rock works just fine, but I do miss it. I do miss the romance of it, just like you said about the refugium. I miss that journey of seeing random shit with a flashlight late at night, you know? So, um, but it's Damn, Mark, rock. you just laid it down. I was listening like I was listening to re-therapy. <laughs> I really was just like, mm, what is he? what is he laying down and you're totally right. There's just something magical about real live rock. And I think, I mean, the only place left is Tampa Bay saltwater, but they're not putting like real rock out there. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good step, but that's, that's, that's the only thing that that's left is um, kind of this man-made rock that is put out in the ocean and kind of seeded. Although man, whew, I am tempted to get some rocks of true wild rock from uh, unique corals from Australia, oh, yeah. putting that into a tank with some low light and let the coralline, <laughs> let the desmophilium just go crazy. But yeah, look, baby eels, small octopi, uh, pistol shrimp, and, um, uh, mantis shrimp and i'll tell you what man one of the craziest things that ever happened is i'm like my brain is fuzzy but i'm trying to remember the context but uh, about 18 years ago i got a batch of something fresh from the caribbean doesn't seem like it was live rock but it must have been live rock and dude we had uh amphipods that that glowed in the dark what like they flash at night that's um, awesome. brittle micro brittle stars did the exact same thing when we would get like fresh Caribbean rock or even sand, you would touch these micro brittle stars. And you could see the group, like the green flash go down their arms. That stuff is amazing. And a few years down the road, you're just going to end up with this, probably the same whittling down of the microbial population as someone who started with dread rock. Right. You remember this is like part of the Halimedia, is Halimedia, like the calcareous leafy algaes? Mm -hmm. like, God, that was so fun to see that crap pop out. Yeah. Yeah. Halimedia, penicillus, shaving brush, all that stuff there used to be like common things to add to, to your reef tank. And Mark and I both love it. We love that romance if you are going to like kind of enclose that into its own thing and enjoy that for what it is. But for 99% of reefers and listeners and viewers, um, that's just not your end goal, right? So we love what Live Rock is supposed to do, and but it's not necessarily going to serve the purpose that you think it will. Yeah, yeah I have, think we have lots of bacteria in a bottle right now. Yeah, agreed. And I mean, I this is as recently as four years ago, I thought, oh, you know, maybe things have changed and some of those cool hitchhikers will stick around now but eventually that rock was pretty bare just coralline covered and all the barnacles mm -hmm. and everything just sort of faded out into you know not nothing so that's a great question from recif gond and um let's see here's a more specific question i think is pretty cool um david Keth, K-O-E-T-H-E, asks, I'm making a stocking plan for Red Sea Reefer 425. I would love to have a few tangs, particularly a white tail bristletooth tang and a yellow or purple tang. Do you think this could work? I want to create the best possible environment for my fish. Thanks. Love the podcast. So what do you think about those two fish? Yeah, I actually think they're good choices. And again, not to get uh, in trouble with the tang police, but... Um 
I always think a zebra soma and then a bristletooth tang is a great combo. Um, I would err on the yellow captive bred yellow tang over the red sea purples. Uh, I don't have any proof of this, but in my own personal humble experience, red seas turn into jerks more. The red sea purples turn into jerky fish more so than yellow tangs for me personally. Uh, and there may be no grounds of truth in that. It's just my own personal experience. Um, that's what I would do. Um, so I just had to look it up to figure out the 425 is about a 90 gallon aquarium. And, um, I think it's more important that you get them in together. Yeah. You, you need to get the, the, the tangs that you're going to want for this tank and add them at the exact same time. And just, just for reference, my Kate is a 90 gallon aquarium. I have a white tail bristle tooth tang, exactly like he mentions and a yellow tang. Right. And so that will work just fine as long as you do it at the same time. You might even consider the three tangs. If you're going to get, you know, tangs for this 90 gallon aquarium, two or three is going to work, but you have to do it at the same time and it'd probably avoid any acanthurus or paracanthurus. Oh, hell so, yeah. um, yeah, no, no, no regal blues, but you could probably add like a yellow, the white tail and a convict tang. At the same time, that's really, really important. I did a whole video on how to um, have more than one kind of tank or more than one tang in a in a reef tank. Um, it was super fun. I caught five yellow tangs out of a 200-gallon system in one go. That was such an awesome moment. Oh, God, I'm just reliving that right now. But I think uh, that's the most important advice I can give David right now is to just make sure to do it at the same time, get them, you know, thoroughly quarantined. Don't add them, don't add them first, but maybe a couple months in when there's a little bit of biofilm on the aquarium where they can, you know, supplement their whatever you feed them with grazing on the tank and you should be good. Yeah. I literally have a yellow tang and a white tail in a 90 gallon aquarium. So I have proof a, uh, that it works. Tumini in a yellow in a, I'd say about a 90, 75, 90 gallon tank um, down here. But the other thing I would add is uh, invest in an acclimation box um, that just hangs inside your tank on the rimless wall um, because um, tangs are sort of a catch-22 where, you know, they'll tell you add your most aggressive fish last. But re realistically speaking, once your tank starts to go through the uglies, adding a tank is beneficial or tang is beneficial, right? Because they're part of your cleanup crew as well as being an attractive, cool fish. But uh, in my experience, even though they can be somewhat territorial to non-tangs, if you have an acclimation box, they get bored really quickly. So if you introduce your tangs early and then want to add some other fish that you're worried about, maybe a pygmy angel or whatever, uh, if you put them in one of those acclimation box for a couple of days and then let them loose, the aggression is by hugely reduced. I mean, it's um, they've gotten bored with the fish, right? Uh, with this new fish. So just a suggestion, it's a small investment, but it's, it's uh, makes your life so much easier. Mm. So I'm going through the comments on last week's video. Yeah. And there's very few questions. There's a lot of <laughs> feedback, um, but I'm just looking for questions and there's some, you know, yeah, I think, uh, 
I think that's that. That's it. We had a lot of comments, you know, on people um, chiming in on Alpha Reef, and I haven't looked at them thoroughly yet, but I will because it's incredible, awesome feedback. And you know, and some people just kind of uh, sharing their stance on cleanup crews pooping out the spores of the algae they're literally meant to get rid of and um all for reef and things like that but uh damn i thought we'd have more questions do you do you have any questions you can conjure up i'm looking at the ones that we might have missed from last week and i did read the comments on all for reef and and again i was trying to be really careful and not dog the product because i actually think it's a really good product and I was having really good experience with it, except for just this weird funk on my, you know, surface of the tank. So, um, I, I think in other use cases, it is a really great product. But uh, uh, I'm going through your questions. Uh, hmm, we kind of covered books, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right yeah. on. Well, we can make this session of uh, reef therapy a little bit short and sweet because you're going to be out here next week. Woo! You flying this weekend? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I right. have that well, pre-trip um, tank anxiety, you know, where it's like, oh, are the tanks okay? Are they going to be okay? No, nah, dude, you're, you're good. <laughs> I'm going to be going to Australia for most of August, and my plan is to just kind of get all the new projects, you know, com- to a state of completion before july or done by early july and then i'm just gonna coast like there's no emergencies when i'm here and i don't expect any emergencies when i'm gone the the list of emergencies that could come up is so small that i know that my team can just totally handle it so i'm I'm not concerned not gonna, oh, one thing I did want to mention, I totally forgot this, is, you know, a couple of re-therapies ago, you talked about increasing the green lighting on your tank to try to get sarcophyte and elegans um, to be yellow again. Mm-hmm. And so that night, I had a uh, Vital Wave 2. Um, it's a combination spotlight product between Ecolamps and Blue Harbor out of Japan. I had been running a deep, deep blue version on uh, a small specimen of Sarcophyte and Elegans to try to get it more yellow. That didn't really work. So then I took a green, green version. And, I mean, it's got green LEDs and cyan. And I started spotlighting a small, I have a piece of Sarcophyte and you know, yellow Fiji leather about this big. It is, it is definitely yellower than it was. It's just not all the way. Not and it's there, in a, yeah. uh, it's in an aquarium though that the par maxes out at about 200 to 250 micromoles, but it, it, it's on the way. It, it's getting there. And so I have a different colony, like a larger colony of sarcophyte and elegans, which is, you know, like several folds, you know, probably like six by four inches across. You know, it's, um, a reasonable, appreciable size, but it's under a lot more light, like lighting intensity. So I'm thinking about moving that incandescent lamp from the small Sarco Elegans to the larger one to see if I can get more results. But I sent you the picture last night. I had to illuminate it with a flashlight. Yeah. Like a nice, strong, powerful flashlight to just kind of get the shot. But it's, it's, it used to be just mustard, like dark mustard brown. And now it's, Less than halfway to becoming canary yellow, but I think Mark Vanderwall is on the right track to using greener light to try and stimulate 
um, this Fiji yellow leather uh, to be yellow again. And what's so funny about talking about Fiji yellow leathers that you and I remember from, was it Richard Ogletree's tank? Yeah, wow, you remembered his name. I couldn't be- begin to remember his name, but once you said it, yeah. Rich, Rich, oh, Richard, oh, that was his handle. Um he he was the first guy we knew. I remember you and I went to visit his tank in Atlanta yeah. like 20 years ago. And he had halides on there. And I remember he had this weird mechanism where he could press a button and like a bunch of stuff would turn off for practical viewing or something. But he was using two metal halides and he was fragging bright yellow pieces of Sarko Elegans um, to, you know, to share with people. And that's the only person I ever knew that was actually, you know, fragging them very, very well. But, uh, but yeah, I just wanted to say like I'm making some progress when you, when you get a yellow Sarko Elegans, uh, Fiji yellow leather can come from Tonga, can come from Australia. Um, it takes a long time for the yellow to just decrease and diminish over time. So I imagine it will take a similarly long time for it to come back. And uh, yeah, nothing has made a Fiji yellow leather yellower um, then the green spotlight I can see right now from where I'm talking to you from. So I'm looking That's forward to awesome. show you that. I can't yeah, wait to see that in person. That's cause I've been real slow. Cause I, you know, I, I don't have as much room for error, error. Right. Uh, and so I've been slowly increasing my greens and I've gone up to 35% and then this week I'm up to 45%, but I'm not seeing much yet, but uh, I think I'm still kind of on the low end of intensity there. Um, I don't think the green accessory channel from the A500s will be enough. Yeah. It it might take a year. It might take a year. But I I don't think you should have any reservations about um, bumping up those greens in in, in larger increments. But, man, it's funny to to think that, like, 98% 98% of listeners and viewers right now have no idea what we're talking about with this bright yellow Fiji leather coral. Um, but hopefully if, if we can crack the code through, you know, real um, spectral dissection, I, I think we're going to get there. I'll tell you what, man, that green spotlight from VitaWave is, um, is, is getting me almost halfway Maybe halfway is, is, is fair enough because like if it was twice as yellow as it is now, everybody would point to that coral. But I got a bigger colony in brighter light that I need to put that same green spotlight onto and just probably wait ugh, three to six months for it to, have fun, to turn. It's not like stony corals. Stony no. corals, when they're happy, I mean, you're talking about a few weeks to two months, you've reached, you know, peak coloration usually. But um, the yellow Fiji leather takes a long time to lose its color, so it probably take just as long to get, regain it. That's good news. That's encouraging, man. Uh, that all spawned out of just reading up on chromoproteins ahead of our talk about coral coloration, right? So it's it's fun how something just sort of eureka's out of that. Um, that's great. I, I can't wait to see that coral in person. That'll be, that'll be fun. And yeah, Very you're right. Cool. I could probably amp up that green to a hundred percent, probably with little impact. I'll do it when I get back. I won't do it and then leave town mm-hmm. for a week, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Very cool, Mark. Well, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Another session of Reef Therapy. We are constantly asked about where to get Reef Builders and Reef Therapy merch. Just go to merch. Oh, no, sorry. 
store.reefbuilders.com and the Reef Builders and Reef Therapy merch is there, hats and shirts as it becomes available. So thanks everyone for, um, you know, helping rep um, this stream of Reef Aquarium consciousness that Mark and I share. And dude, I'm so looking forward to seeing you this weekend. We're going to have some good times. Uh, I know you had a great experience last summer yeah. and I think you'll have a lot more to enjoy this time. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. Very cool. Well, thanks to everybody for tuning in and we'll catch you guys on the, the next session of Retherapy where Mark and I will be live in person. I mean, together, but not with you guys <laughs> <laughs> pretty soon. So um, thanks again for listening and or watching and we'll see you guys very soon. Yeah, yeah. I'll see you next week, man. Bye. All right.